Well, let's turn to that passage we had read to us earlier on in Mark chapter 13. Mark, Matthew, Mark rather, chapter 13. Uh, this is Mark's little apocalypse. That's how it's sometimes described. Uh, it is uh, sometimes called the Olivet Discourse because it occurred on the Mount of Olives and it's a kind of major teaching block in our Lord's ministry. And the subject is the future, the future to the people present then, the future to the people sat here this evening. Because the church of Jesus Christ is composed of believing people on whom the ends of the ages have come. That's how Scripture describes it. We're the people on whom the ends of the ages have come. Referring, of course, to the coming of Jesus, referring to the fulfillment of many of the promises of God in Him, which are uh, being fulfilled in us, in you and I, as we come to know Him as our Messiah, our King, our Lord, our Savior, our God, as the high priest, as, as the second Adam, as the lily of the valley, the rose of Sharon, the bright and morning star, the beloved of our hearts, all of these, this language poured into the expected one who has come and is our Savior and Lord whom we believe in and whom we love. And we find ourselves, in a sense, between the times. That is, between the time where we are now, where what we already have in Christ is real and is precious and wonderful, but there is that which we do not yet have that has been promised to us. So here we are in between the times, what we already have in Him, what we yet to have in Him. We still live in the world, but we don't belong to the world, and we find ourselves disjointed. We watch the news, we, we read of arguments on social media, we, we observe the toxic uh, public discourse, whether it's among politicians or whether it's among uh, people in the media generally, actors, actresses, whether it's at home with families, uh, the toxicity is, is apparent everywhere. We live in a world that is strange, getting stranger and stranger to the believer, harder and harder for us to process it, harder and harder for us to feel comfortable in the world. We're in it, but we don't belong to it. And yet we have a great responsibility to live in, in it in such a way that we commend the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not all of us are called to preach it. Not all of us are called to be evangelists and to share it. We're all to be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks us for the hope that we have. We can talk to them about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and the proofs of the resurrection as the basis of our hope in Him. But we're also to be reaching forward in our minds, living in anticipation of and in the awareness of this great day, this great day when Jesus Christ will return in personal presence and with great power. So at the end of this 
discourse in which Jesus has been talking about these subjects, he draws it to a conclusion by pointing us to the fig tree, the ripening fig tree in the one hand, and pointing us forward to that hour of his return, which is the culminating point of God's purposes in the world. So first of all, then, he, he, ta- he points us, or he points them, and through them to us, the lesson of the fig tree. Most Palestinian trees are non-deciduous. But the fig tree alone loses its leaves in the rainy winter so that its branches become bare. And in late spring, late spring, it begins to bud and then follows summer. In fact, the budding of the fig tree is a signal, a kind of sign to everyone that there will be no more frosts coming now, that summer really is on the horizon, it's near at hand. And the budding of signs of life of the early, of early spring will confirm what the fig tree has signaled. And uh, Jesus spoke these words and drew the attention of the people to the fig tree at the time of the uh, Passover, the Passover season. Uh, He spoke these words on the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is known for its fig trees. And at this Passover, they would have been in bud. And the point that Jesus is making is that there are signs, there are like the buds on the tree, there are indications that things are happening in the world and we're to be aware of those things. In fact, there's a, the language that Jesus uses is that you know that he is near. When you see these things taking place, you know that he is near. The language there of nearness comes from Amos chapter 8, which has a similar reference to the summer and is probably in the back of our Lord's mind, if we can presume to say that. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The end has come. I'll never pass by them again. The summer is near. And it underscores the nearness of the end. And ultimately, the nearness of his coming. We'll know that he is near. In Philippians chapter 4, the Lord is near. In Revelation chapter 1, the time is near. Back in uh, the end of the book of Revelation, in chapter 22, when it talks about the second coming, seal not the prophecy of this book, because the Lord is near. Outside of the canon of Scripture in 4th Ezra, it says, when you see that a certain part of the predicted signs are past, then you will know that it is the very time when the Most High is about to visit the world. And so Mark quotes Jesus. When you see these things taking place, 
you know that he is near at the very gates. Isaiah 13, the day of the Lord is near. The Son of Man, the end of all things, is at hand. And so when Jesus gives them this word, and it was relevant to the disciples who were with him then, when he says that, uh, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place, he, he is speaking, first of all, to the people standing in front of him. In their lifetime, Jerusalem would be invaded, the temple would be desecrated. Both the city and the sanctuary would be brought to an end. And Jesus says, watch for this. Your generation will see this happen. Your generation will go through this. And he tells them very carefully to listen to his words. And when you see these signs, he says to his believing people, flee from the city at that time. Get up into the mountains. Get away altogether from there. So the word that he gives them is relevant to the people in front of him. Secondly, he's given us a word that's relevant to his disciples in every age. Jesus talks about calamities such as famines and earthquakes and wars. He calls these things earlier on in the discourse the beginning of the birth pains. Every generation of human beings from Jesus until the end when he returns will experience such crises as these. But the believer is not to be disheartened or dismayed by such things. We're to regard the signs of the times as labor pains. What do labor pains indicate? Well, we did a kind of uh, experiment in our family. What do labor pains indicate? And five times over, they indicated the arrival of children. Labor pains announce that something is afoot and you better get in the car before waters break to get to the hospital in time. If that's too much information for you, uh, deal with it yourself. But the, 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 Jesus uses that language. The labor pains will herald the birth of a new age. A new age. They point to the day when the people of God will be released from affliction. When creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. This generation will not pass away until all these things take place. There's a relevance for the people of every age. There's a relevance for the people of Jesus' age. The patristics, that is the early church fathers, believed that this generation referred particularly to the church, the society of God's people. The church against whom the gates of hell will not prevail. That church will persevere to the end. There's a sense in which every generation of believers will see these things happening. There are signs to these believers that however bad it seems for the church at that moment in their history and in their lives, the church will endure to the end. Certainly, the first generation of the church saw these events occur, the fall of Jerusalem and the temple. Well, if not 
today? Uh, if not today, we've seen, have we seen all of these predictions being fulfilled? Many of them already have. Jesus says to them, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. This is the word of the Lord. Psalm 148, for he commanded and they were created. He established them forever and ever. He gave the decree, it shall not pass away. This world, as we know it, will pass away. When we hear the scaremongers talking about what's going to happen if global warming goes on the way it's going, or telling us what will happen if we get into a nuclear war, we have to calmly say to them, but we already know this world will pass away. This world, the world of stones and houses and buildings of several kinds, this world with its technology, this will all pass away. That's a reality. Psalm 148. It shall that he has commanded, and they were created. He established them forever and ever. He gave a decree, and the decree shall not pass away. The world will, but his word will endure forever. Back in Isaiah chapter 51, there's a reference. Again, I think that Jesus is picking us is picking up and drawing our attention to it. It says this, Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath. For the heavens, that is the universe you see when you're standing out in the dark and looking up to the sky at the stars. Lift up your head to the heavens and look at the earth beneath. For the heavens will vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And then Jesus goes on to say something that has concerned many Christians over the years. There's been a lot of uh, ink spilt about it. Most of it is not worth you reading. Concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. St. Athanasius put it like this. No one knows, not even the Son, that is, when viewed according to his flesh, because he too, as human, lives within the limits of the human condition. Viewed according to his divinity as the Word who is to come, who is to be the judge, who is to be the bridegroom who is coming, he knows when and in what hour he will come. But becoming human... In his human nature, he hungers, he thirsts, he suffers along with all other human beings, and similarly as a human being, he cannot see the future. 
That's uh, Augustus, uh, Athanasius's take on these words. Well, let's move on from there. Christ's word is steadfast and sure. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not pass away. And that was true of the prophecies Jesus made of the destruction of Jerusalem, the fall of the temple, the scattering of his people, the raising up of false prophets and false Christs. That has been happening over and over again within the history of the world. But then secondly, a second point of the passage is the returning Lord, the ripening tree, the returning Lord. That's from verses 32 to the end of the chapter. Our Lord has just stressed the certainty, the absolute certainty of what he has promised. But he doesn't want our certainties to lead to speculation on the one hand or undue preoccupation on the other. That's happened in the history of the church. It happened in the 19th century here in America. There were groups of people who had calculated out, as they saw it, the date at which Jesus was coming again. They went up a hill and they waited at the top of the hill so they would be near him when he came down and he'd see them first. They did that. They waited, they waited, they waited, they waited. They realized they got their calculations wrong. They went back to their computers, didn't have computers, in the 19th century, and they worked out the the figures again, and they went back up their hill, and they waited, they waited, they waited, they waited, and Jesus didn't come. That's when you take it uh, irrational. That's an irrational approach to listening to Jesus' words here. He doesn't want us going down the road of speculation or preoccupation, fixing dates, Uh, trying to precisely identify what is happening in the world. Like one young minister in Belfast 50 years ago preaching uh, to his evening service about the common market, as it was called then, the European Union as it's called today, in prophecy. How wrong can you be? (laughs) I was dead wrong, but got over it very quickly. Yeah. Jesus doesn't want us doing that. He doesn't want us doing that. And we're not, we're to be astonished by his words when he says, no one, that is no one in the human level, knows about that day or that hour. Angels don't know. Jesus in his human nature doesn't know. There's something mysterious about this. We, we're to wait and look for and pray for and hasten that day when Jesus will be manifested in all his glory to a wondering and shocked world and an admiring and rejoicing church. And this leads him then to the story of the master who goes away on a journey and promises to return. As he prepares to leave for an indefinite period of time, he gives work to each of his servants, tells them what to do. The various tasks are are left behind. And what they are to do in his absence is they are to work and watch. Work and watch. In other words, they are to do the tasks that lie to hand every day. You must get up tomorrow morning and go to your office to work or go to the hospital to work. And I must go to my study and start to prepare next week's sermon 
on the end of Judges, which is terrifying me, which is why I've been putting it off for a couple of weeks. Uh, We all have our stuff to do. And we're to get on with it, Jesus says. We're to get on with it. We're to work, but we're to watch. We're to keep an eye out. There will come a day that we go to work when we will never go home. There'll come a day when I go to sit down and write a sermon. I'll be trying to find out what the passage is about and uh, doing all the research I have to do in order to make sure I've got it right within the bounds of orthodoxy and so on. And your day will be interrupted. My day will be interrupted. Jesus will come again. The Lord Jesus has gone away, at least from our sense perception. He's at the right hand of the Father in heaven. But someday he will return. He will return. And meanwhile, we're faithfully to get on with doing the tasks he has assigned for us. Are you a husband or a wife, a parent or a child? Are you single and have time in your hands and opportunity, uh, not only of working, but also of doing voluntary work for others? Are you an employee or an employer of labor? Are you a citizen? Or are you in government? Every one of us, whatever our role, whatever our place in society, have things to do. Are you a member of a church? Are you one of those appointed within the church to care for the people of God? Each of us have responsibilities. Not only responsibilities, we have resources. Some of us have money and can be faithful stewards of that. It can be uh, used, spent wisely in terms of practical Christianity. We've been given the gospel. The gospel is entrusted to us. When Christ comes again, we want to make sure that we've been giving out the gospel, proclaiming the gospel. We are moving inexorably to an inevitable encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. We will either appear before him at the moment of death, going into his presence as believers, or face him when he returns from heaven. Do we think about this? Do we think about seeing our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ? Do we think of that day when God, as the old innkeepers used to say, appears in the scene and says, time, gentlemen, please, and brings an end to the festivities of the world? Are we ready to go and meet him? He likens one to a doorkeeper who has to keep awake and alert. I think he's particularly thinking there of the, the elders, the pastors, the ministers of the church responsible for the Christian ministry. In fact, that doorkeeper image is a special simile for the Christian ministry of one kind or another. Well, their duty is to tell you these things. What I'm telling you tonight, encouraging you to think about these things. The early Christians reminded themselves by greeting one another with the words, Maranatha, the Lord is coming. The Lord declares that his people must beware of carelessness and laziness. During the time of the master's absence, servants are obliged to do his will. We think he's away, but of course he sees what we do in secret. The time of his return and our accountability will someday come to pass.
He also has a word for the moment, which is realism. Jesus throughout this chapter warns us against the danger of false optimism. While it's true that man makes progress in many directions, the fact remains that in spite of all of the progress, progress made over my life, that poverty and injustice and disease and wars persist. The world is not getting better and better and better and better and better. All the technology for it to get better and better and better is there. And perhaps even in many places, the will to be better and better is there. But every day, and in every way, there is deterioration. And honest heads recognize that before us are perilous times. The perversity of unregenerate society means adversity and persecution for the people of God. We must face this with patience to the very end. That's what the Lord calls us to. He calls us to endurance and to confidence. We must refuse to sink into morbid pessimism. In this world, you will have tribulation, says Jesus, but don't go off into a corner and cry about it or moan about it or complain to your friends about it. That's just going to be the case. That's the way it is. But the triumph of Christ's kingdom is not in doubt. The last word does not belong to apostasy. Though we, it breaks our heart to see our brothers and sisters who apostatize from the faith. The last word does not go to abounding iniquity in the world. It goes to the one who will destroy Antichrist by the sheer word of his power. Despite the fierce opposition of Satan and his rebel armies, the gospel of Christ will be preached to all nations and win converts from all nations into the kingdom of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. And the Lord will come. The Lord will come. In the words of an old chorus, it may be at morn when the day is awaking, when sunlight through darkness and shadow is breaking, that Jesus will come in the fullness of glory to receive from the world his own. O Lord Jesus, how long, how long till we hear that glad song, Christ returneth, Christ returneth. Hallelujah. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would build us up in our most holy faith, stir our hearts with expectation, keep us looking up to see you come. In your strong name we pray. Amen.